Welcome to Interviews for Resistance. We are now into the second year of the Trump administration, and the last year has been filled with ups and downs, important victories, successful holding campaigns, and painful defeats. We've learned a lot, but there's always more to learn and more to be done. In this now weekly series, we talk with organizers, agitators, and educators, not only about how to resist, but how to build a better world. I am Sarah Jaffe, your host. I'm Celine McNicholas, and I'm the Director of Labor Law and Policy here at the Economic Policy Institute. Okay, so you have put out a new report, a new agenda for essentially labor law in the U.S. Um, so let's start off by talking about the context for this, um, the state of existing U.S. labor law right now, especially after the Supreme Court's Janus decision. So I think that this is a really unique moment because for the first time in a long time, you have lots of different folks um, here in D.C. and out in the states talking about the need for some sort of labor and employment law reform. And mm. as you alluded to in your question, you know, there has been much um, worker-favored uh, activity in that area in quite some time. I think uh -huh. the bills that have been considered in Congress have been sort of viciously anti-worker um, the yeah. last several Congresses. So the fact that there's some attention being focused on a need for worker-centered labor agenda is is really, I think, uh, an important place that, that we where we are. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking to you. I'm in Madison, Wisconsin right now, so it is uh, all a little fresh thinking about the attacks on, on yes. labor law states yes. in recent years. Although we did also just see a, a big win on that front in Missouri on um, the right to work law. So, Yes, I, I, I mean, I think that, that there's, there's a whole, you know, this is a, a new moment. Um, I think that things have gotten so bad that you, you sort of see policymakers being forced to pay attention to issues mm -hmm. that affect working people in a way that they, you know, from both parties have, have not had to sort of come, you know, come to the table and talk about these issues as primary issues of concern in, in a very long yeah. time. Yeah. So the report is, um, has the title First Day Fairness. So talk about what that means. Right. So, you know, the First Day Fairness, it, when we we were talking about, uh, you know, internally what reforms we wanted to highlight, and, and of course the list just grew and grew and grew um, because there's so much uh, need for for action in this area. But the one sort of common thread was that you know workers really start out, um, you know, in a place where the, the deck is stacked against them from their first day on the job, and you right. know I think that that point um, was made really really clear this Supreme Court term with um, the Epic Systems case, where you know you mm -hmm. considered that as a condition of employment. Employment, workers are being required to sort of sign away, um, you know, rights to to a number of workplace protections, you know, just just in order to, to get that job. Um, right. And and so I think this sort of basic sense that you know you, you I think most people in this country have a, a feeling right that. The, that the system isn't working for them. And a big part of that yeah. is that, you know, you start, you know, work and you start out in a, in a way that your employer is so incredibly um, advantaged over you as the individual worker in terms of leverage, in terms of, quite frankly, our legal system. And we wanted to kind of highlight that point that on the first day, unfortunately, you know, workers are increasingly coming to the job with no power. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, so talk us through, I guess, some of the items on this agenda. You've got it organized under several um, headings. And how all of this fits together? Because, um, as you know in the report, these are not a lot of these new ideas when we're talking about things like raising wage. But trying to put it all together as a comprehensive um, 
framework for what labor law should maybe look like now is a little different. Yeah, so I think one of the things that um, I'll I'll sort of frame this around this notion that there's there's labor law and then there's sort of fundamental you know workers' rights right that apply to all working mm-hmm. people whether or not they're you know members of of a union um, or you know you're an individual worker at a workplace where you know you you don't have a union or you're a worker who's not cover, currently covered by labor law um, protections, which means that you you don't have the right to to unionize and and those are domestic workers, um, you know folks who who are working in people's homes, um, you know, caregivers. And, and so there are there are lots of different reforms that are sort of necessary, and we try and put these in, in buckets. And, you know, our, our first bucket, um, is, and I think this is becoming a, a sort of um, positively a consistent refrain, is that people need the right to be able to organize and have a union in their workplace. And so that means expanding existing protections such that some of those workers who have traditionally been excluded from labor law protections are are now covered. Um, And it also means that, you know, employers do not sort of get the right to frustrate workers' ability to come together and demand a union, vote for a union in their workplace. So that's sort of the fundamental first, you know, tranche of our proposal, that you've got to have meaningful reform around getting people to, you know, be able to form a union when a workplace desires to form a union. So, so the, as I said, the first, you know, tranche is really strengthening collective bargaining, and that's for workers traditionally covered, but also expanding the right to organize. And then there's sort of this notion that there's still going to be workers um, who, who are not going to be able to access a union. And that means okay. that we've got to sort of do more to ensure a basic level of job quality, that there's, you know, fundamental, you know, fair wages, fair minimum wage, you know, people have a right to overtime protections, those kinds of things. And then in addition, we've got to do something now. Now to combat this sort of expanding employer practice of requiring workers to sort of sign away all of these existing rights as a condition of employment, um, which I think is going to become something that just continues to to grow, a practice that unfortunately employers are now, um, you know, going to be considering and, you know, as almost negligent if they don't require workers to, you know, sign away these rights after the Supreme Court ruling. So that's another bucket. And then the sort of final piece, which applies, you know, across the board, and I think the Trump administration has been a, a classic example of how this should not work, and that is that, yeah. you know, we need enforcement of these rights. We need government enforcement. We need folks to be able to come in, investigate, inspect, ensure that our workplaces are safe, ensure that we're being mm-hmm. paid properly. You know, without enforcement, none of those rights have any kind of real meaning. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the things in particular that has just been gutted, not necessarily in the law, right? Theoretically, we still have OSHA, but, like, there are no OSHA inspectors, so... Right. And, you know, and, and we consider part of enforcement, too, to be, you know, appropriate penalties, right? Can If, if you mm-hmm. have a, a toothless law, right, if you um, – and OSHA is a great example of, you know, you could have the absolute um, best functioning, you know, inspectors, you know, out there um, finding violations. And if the violate, if the law does not allow for, uh, you know, a truly prohibitive um, penalty, then even if you have an employer who, you know, is found to be in violation of the law, you know, um, I think, unfortunately, it's the case that, you know, many employers are just factoring, you know, um, injuries to workers, even death to workers, into the cost of doing business, into their bottom line. That is a law that is not working, right? If a penalty is so low that you'd rather just, you know, pay that penalty than actually rectify the underlying unsafe work practice, that's a real problem. Yeah. So um, you also have, you know, in 
in within these various layers um some sort of rarely discussed things that are are quite important like you mentioned the right to you know labor protections for secondary strikes which um goes way back it's a, a particular interest of mine but also um talk about like non-compete agreements and how workers are increasingly being forced into signing these um so you know it, it's easy to get headline level attention for things like a minimum wage increase but talk about some of these more granular things that maybe most people in a world with six percent private sector union density don't even know about Sure. So, I, you know, I think one of the things that stands out to me as we were pulling together, you know, this report is, you know, the, the sort of massive shift in the law. While you, you know, mentioned none of these are new ideas and policymakers and workers advocates have, you know, long discussed an appropriate, um, you know, joint employer standard. Um, right. There's been increased discussion of non-compete agreements and, how, you know, how to best combat those, um, you know, but in terms of, you know, how can workers get these rights in the real world, right? Um, if, right. if we had to choose one one area, what would that, you know, how could we best serve workers? And I think one thing that's really clear is because there are so many um, reforms that are necessary. So you, that would mean that Congress would have to hit the ground running with a Democrat-controlled Congress and just pass one worker, you know, um, rights measure after another, or, you, you know, we could do something meaningful to make workers have real access to, to unions. Um, and, and they would get many of the same protections via a collective bargaining agreement that would otherwise, you know, have to be enacted um, through law. And, you know, so strengthening the, the right to organize, the right to be a member of a union, and then what can unions do for workers, right? And to your point, sort of the secondary, you know, sort of re reimagining the, the sort of power of, you know, organized labor, I think, to me, is sort of the takeaway from the report. Um, and that gets into lots of, you know, things that have sort of eroded for um, organized labor over, you know, over the last um, 40, 50 years. Uh, and, yeah. you know, certainly the right to strike being, you know, essential to, to that, um, you know, right to effectively organize. Um, you don't have yeah. much leverage if at the end of the day, you know, an employer can just sort of replace you, um, which is the current state yeah. of, of the law um, for workers right. who do, uh, you know, decide to engage in a strike because they've, you know, they've they've come to their wit's end. They're not getting the, you know, wage increase. They're working in an unsafe condition. They're being treated disrespectfully. You know, if you take away, you know, workers' ability to kind of um, advocate for themselves in those processes, then, you know, essentially you take away the, you know, benefit of being in a in a bargaining unit. So I want to talk specifically about the joint employer problem because it is such a big one these days. We're, when we're talking about big companies like Walmart and Amazon, um, we're also talking about layers of people who work for them but don't really work for them. Um, and so you have some proposals in this that would tackle this question of, you know, what people call the fissured workplace. So, you know, I think, um, and this goes back to the, you know, sort of bargaining um, table. I know I sound like a broken record here to kind of keep bringing yeah. everything back to, to, to bargaining. But, you know, without, um, you know, being able to, to bring an employer to the bargaining table or be able to name, you know, your employer um, in, in a wage claim if you're not being paid properly, then again, you know, all of the, the workplace, you know, rights, the way our current system is structured, right, is that employers owe certain duties under the 
the law to their, you know, to their workers. So one of those is obviously to, you know, pay them fairly. But if you don't, you know, know who your employer of, of record is because of the, the sort of fissuring of the workplace, right, that sort of um, creative subcontracting that allows employers to, you know, evade liability for, you know, any host of violation also enables them to evade the bargaining table, right? If you can't bring the right employer to the bargaining table, then you're not going to be able to negotiate a collective bargaining agreement either. So having a standard that, you know, captures, you know, everybody who exerts control over, um, you know, the terms and conditions of employment for a worker, you know, is going to have some responsibility as an employer then, that you're not going to be able to sort of, sub, you know, subcontract away um, the essential responsibilities of an employer. Um, and that's so important, as I said, under a system that puts so much into that, you know, clear employment relationship in terms of our rights as workers. So if we can't identify our employer, we're left really with, with no one to, you know, point to as responsible for a violation of the law. And so that's one of the main elements of, of this proposal is making sure that folks know on their first day who their employer is. You know, do they have more than one employer? You know, how do you, how do you know who to bring to the table if you're going to bargain? And how do you know who to bring to the courtroom if your rights are violated? Right, right. Um, so, you, in the report, you note that some of these proposals are already in bills before Congress. So sort of two-part question, what are the chances of any of these particular ones or any of them look like they would move very quickly, say, if the Democrats took back Congress, I guess, and the presidency, because it's not like Trump is going to sign any of them. Um, and then what would link it, trying to link them together to make a big sort of, you know, labor bill of rights kind of thing, um, what would that look like? So I think it's it's really encouraging that so many of these reforms already um, live in existing introduced legislation in, in Congress. Uh, none of them get a great deal of attention, but um, in particular, the Workers' Freedom to Negotiate Act, which was introduced this Congress, which um, goes to the heart of many of the you know um, reforms aimed at ensuring that folks can unionize. Um, that's the the piece of legislation that includes some of the the re, um, reimagined right to strike, uh, you know, reforms right. as well. Um, you know, in terms of how, how likely it is uh, that any of this, you know, passes, I think that that's really on all of us, right, that we, yeah. you know, we have a responsibility, um, you know, as advocates to, you know, g get in there and, and make sure that people are, number one, aware of these bills and also that there's a grassroots moment. I think, you know, mentioning that, uh, you know, you're in Wisconsin, I think that there's a great, um, you know, demonstration in, like, what workers can demand from elected officials. And we absolutely have to, you know, greet this new Congress with the clear understanding, um, you know, if it's Democratic controlled, you know, that, that these issues are our top tier, you know, issues that we demand mm -hmm. that they be, um, you know, considered uh, in, in the first hundred days. Um, you know, I think the fact that we haven't had a minimum wage increase um, in, you know, so long at this point, we're, we're looking at over a decade um, of, you know, failure to pass legislation that, you know, that's shared by both parties. So I think in terms of the likelihood of, of all of the, all of these measures, any of these measures, you know, passing, I think it's really incumbent upon, you know, um, all of us 
us, you know, to, to sort of speak up and demand that our elected officials don't just treat these things as campaign slogans, but that, you know, we really demand action on these, you know, critical reforms that, quite frankly, affect, you know, all of us, you know, regardless of party affiliation, um, regardless of many of the other, you know, um, issues that may divide us. I think a fair economy and how we are all treated at work, um, how we are all paid, uh, and economic justice, to me, is such a unifying issue that I really um, hold out hope that it will, you know, be a top-tier issue um, in, in a Democratic-controlled, you know, Congress. And, you know, let yeah. Trump veto a, a minimum wage increase. You know, let Trump veto, yeah. you know, uh, a, a bill that would, you know, actually give people in this country meaningful, um, you know, path to have a union in their workplace. You know, I, I think, yeah. um, you know, I, I remain optimistic that, uh, you know, that Democrats will recognize that um, these issues simply cannot be ignored going forward. Mm -hmm. um, that said, I think, it, like I said, it, we, we have to demand it. Um, you know, it's not enough to, to just be sort of against the status quo. We really um, need meaningful, you know, reform in this area. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I think we should, we can take away from what just happened in Missouri is that even though Democrats in states like that are really, have not prioritized workers' rights issues, when they put right to work on the ballot, two-thirds of the state voted against it, that these are winning issues. And we see that over and over again when minimum wage increases are on the ballot. Um, they won even in states when in 2016 where Trump won. Right, right. And I mean, you know, it, it's, it seems almost forgotten now because his record has been so appallingly um, in, in opposite to his campaign promises, but it should be instructive that that is exactly what Trump ran on as well. Sort of this notion that, you know, the American worker um, is, is being, uh, you know, disadvantaged, ill-served by the, the existing system. Um, that, you know, that was a winning message, right? That, that, that yeah. is um, in, an, in an era where who knows what's true, right? That is true for, for the vast majority of people in this country. Um, and, you know, I think there's so much coverage of sort of the economic imbalance. You see that in the, the CEO pay, um, you know, statistics that, uh, you know, a colleague of mine, you know, put out recently as well that just sort of shows that, you know, this, this system is serving those at the top incredibly well, and the rest of us is absolutely misserving, exploiting. And I think most people feel that, understand that know that because at the end of the day you know your your um, your own economy right your own bank account um, you know demonstrates that to, to most folks they they you know are not able to afford a home they're you know one you know, illness away from you know having a, a you know a bankruptcy and I think that those kinds of feelings that um, you know most most people have real access to that they they've either experienced it their neighbors experienced it a family members experienced that I think we also all know how um, I think how desperate we feel for our job um, I think which is something that's really different from you know uh, a few generations ago where where people felt that they had some you know leverage in in this economy that's no longer true. And I think it's just become sort of what we all accept. But to that point, that's why we kind of have to demand more from our elected officials, right? And I think that, you know, my hope would be that we, you know, we convince Democrats, to, you know, to, to run uh, and and deliver on, on this type of platform, because I think um, it's so critically important to uh, sort of rebalancing our, our economy and our, our system of work.
Great. How can people can read the report and keep up with you? Um, so the report is going to be on uh, our website, which is epi.org, um, and, uh, you know, really encourage people to sign up for um, for our alerts as well. There's plenty of um, helpful information on how to be supportive of some of the, the bills that we talked about um, and how to get, you know, get involved with, um, you know, pestering their elected officials uh, and also those folks who are who are running to represent them um, on on these measures. Interviews for Resistance is a project of Sarah Jaffe with assistance from Laura Fayabois and support from the Nation Institute. You can find more information at necessarytrouble.org. Thanks for listening.